Um, and again, let me just welcome all of you here, uh, those of you who come regularly or tune in regularly, but also uh, those of you who are guests with us this morning. It's great uh, to have you uh, with us, and I'm, I'm just seeing some old friends down here, and it's, it's really sweet to, to see you guys. So, uh, And if you're, if you're uh, a guest with us online, thank you for, for tuning in. Uh, it means a lot to me that, that you would do that. Uh, as, we, as we do every week, a, a really important part of our gathering on Sunday mornings is to open our Bibles together and see uh, what God has to say uh, to us about himself and about ourselves, right? Uh, we, we learn something not only about God, but about ourselves in the pages of the Bible. And so uh, as we do that each week, I'll have the verses up on the, on the screen. You can follow along that way. Uh, But if you'd like to follow along in a paper Bible, our ushers are coming down the aisle right now. And if you don't have one and and you would like one, just signal them somehow and they will make sure that you uh, get one and you can follow along uh, that way. If you don't have a Bible at home, uh, please consider taking this one as our gift uh, to you. We think everyone should have this incredible book. Um, There are places around the world that people don't have this book in their language, and we are blessed to be able to read it uh, really whenever we want. Well, uh, in here, uh, as, you've, as you've already uh, been alerted to, we are in an Advent uh, series here where we're uh, focused on four names that were prophesied in the, in the book of Isaiah, uh, specifically Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Uh, you have those four names on, on the cover of your worship folder, and we also have them on the screen. Uh, each week, we're going to focus on one of those uh, and, and, and try to understand what it is that was good news about this when it was written uh, about 2,700 years ago and why it should be good news uh, for us today. Uh, so last week we looked at that name, Wonderful Counselor, and we, we saw that Messiah's wisdom surpasses every other source of wisdom. In fact, we, we, we learned that Jesus the Messiah is the embodiment, the personification of wisdom itself. And we learned that in order for us to benefit from his wise counsel, we have to actually do what he says. I, I hope that this past week has, has been a week of doing what he says for you. Uh, Today, we're going to focus on the second title that Isaiah says he will be known by or he will be called, and that is Mighty God. And just before we look at this this title more closely, let's pray together and just ask for God's help in understanding this. Lord, everything about this season is a mystery. To us. It's a wonderful mystery, but it is a mystery. And so we pray as we, uh, as we come to this second title that Messiah would be called, would be named, uh, we pray that you would, uh, through your Spirit, help us to understand what it is you are saying to us about this and what needs to change in us having understood this. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, 
our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the term uh, mighty God uh, and the one after it, everlasting Father, uh, are really some of the most uh, scandalous. I don't know why I have wonderful counselor bolded there. Should be mighty God, but... uh, Mighty God and Wonderful Counselor are are some of the most scandalous words in the Bible. Uh, At at least in two significant ways, these two terms uh, really turn our understanding of Messiah completely upside down. And and before I explain what I mean there, I want to look at these two words um, and... uh, and then, like we did last week, we'll, we'll bring those two words together to, to try to understand what is being said here. So, uh, first of all, let's start uh, with the word mighty. So, uh, the, the Hebrew word underneath our English word for mighty is gibor. Um, not geezer, gibor, okay? Uh, it's, it's translated in, in various places in the Bible as mighty, strong, champion, hero, uh, valiant warrior. It's, uh, it's really a military word. Uh, the mighty men of Israel uh, were, the, were the men who made up the army uh, of Israel. Okay? The, the, the Gibor men of, of Israel uh, were, were the army. Goliath was called a mighty man of valor. Gibor, again, is the word... Uh, that was used there. David also was was uh, called mighty. Uh, the word gibor uh, appears over 150 times in the Hebrew Bible, the the Old Testament. Interestingly, only 13 of those times are used to refer refer to God. Uh, Isaiah 9 6, our, our verse this morning, is one of those. So that's that's uh, mighty or or gibor. Uh, God. Um, the, the Hebrew word El uh, is the most common word for God in the Bible. Um, it means God, okay? Uh, it, it, it not only shows up uh, 250 times all by itself, uh, but it's also used as a, a, a contraction in, in over 150 names of people or places that we are pretty familiar with. Uh, in in the Bible. So, for example, Israel. Okay, we we say Israel, right? It, it's it's two parts. Uh, it's the name that that God gave to Jacob after he wrestled with God, and so it means God. El strives. That's that's what the word means. Bethel. You've heard that name that that place. It means house. Beth or Bet. El, house of God. Samuel, uh, you've, you've heard that name. Our kids were learning about Samuel just a couple of weeks ago. Samuel's name is made up of, of two parts. Shema, to hear. Maybe you remember us talking about the Shema, Hero Yisrael, the Lord your God. Hear, Shema, and El, okay? Shema, El, makes up the word Samuel. It's interesting. What do, we, what do we know maybe most famously about Samuel? What did he say? 
Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So his name really is, is a part of the story of, of his life. Um, at this time of year, we're really uh, used to hearing the name Emmanuel, right? And, and that's a name that is made up of, of three Hebrew words, im, which means with, nu, which means us, and el, which means God, God with us. So when we put El and Gibor together, we get the God who is mighty or mighty God. And this was a concept that wasn't new to the people that Isaiah was writing to. Because God had told his people through Moses, for example, that he was the great and mighty God who alone was to be worshipped, Deuteronomy 10.17. Job referred to God as a mighty warrior, Job 16, 14. In Psalm 24, David asks the question, who is this king of glory? And his answer in the refrain of the psalm is Yahweh, who is strong and mighty. Yahweh, who is mighty in battle. Later on in Isaiah, we read that the Lord will march forth like a mighty hero. He will come out like a warrior, full of fury, He will shout his battle cry and crush all his enemies. That's Isaiah 42, 13. And then Jeremiah calls God the great and powerful God, the Lord of heaven's armies, Jeremiah 32, 18. So there's, in one sense, nothing especially new in this term, El Gibor, or mighty God. That is until we remember that this term mighty God is in the context of a prophecy about a coming Messiah. So let's look at verse 6 again, and I'm going to take a sip here. Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I I tried to emphasize some words there to give you a a clue. But in the context of talking about a coming Messiah, Isaiah says that he's going to come as a human child. And that human child would be called by two names that should only ever be used to refer to Almighty God. This is scandalous. Hard for us to understand, maybe, but really, I mean, blasphemous to to apply those names to a human. Uh, Jewish people were so appalled at the suggestion of this that uh, they manipulated both the Greek and Hebrew renderings of Isaiah 6. Um, Here's the wording from the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, there it says, For a child has been born to us, a son also has been given to us, and authority will be upon his shoulder. So far, so good. Catch the change here. And his name shall be called Messenger of the Great Council, for I, God, will bring peace upon the princes, peace and health to him. Very different. 
the, the Jewish Publication Society Contemporary Hebrew Translation follows a, a similar translation choice when it says this, For a child has been born to us, a son has been given us, and authority has settled on his shoulders. Again, okay. He has been named, the mighty God is planning grace. The eternal father is a peaceable ruler. This is very different, right? Both of these translations, um, it seems, are attempts to deny what the prophet Isaiah was actually saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the second person of the Trinity was going to become human, human, in order to save us. This is, of course, what the Apostle John, also under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was saying in John 1, where he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Okay, we're we're good so far. And then these amazing words, that word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of of grace and truth. Bruce uh, Hurt is a medical doctor, but also a, a Bible commentator uh, and has some wonderful insights. He, he says this, Isaiah's prophecy is not just about a child born for us who would become a mighty ruler. He is that, but he's not just that. He's not just a baby, not just a man, but he is God. The God-man, the mystery of mysteries, God incarnate, God in the flesh, God concarni. God with meat on him, flesh on him. This commentator's from Texas, so maybe. (laughs) And he is mighty. For he is the one who made the world, and everything belongs to him. This this amazing truth that that we're talking about right here is what is called the hypostatic union. It's a really fancy theological term that means that Jesus has two complete natures. One fully human, one fully divine. And and we see this doctrine in, in several places in the Bible. It's in the Messianic prophecies, like the one we're in uh, today, Isaiah 9. Uh, It's in John 1 that we just read. It's in Colossians, which we just finished a few weeks ago. It's in Hebrews 13, where we're told that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. John Piper describes it this way. Jesus has two complete natures, one fully human and one fully divine. The doctrine of the hypostatic union teaches us that these two natures are united in one person in the God-man. Jesus is not two persons. He is one person. 
The hypostatic union is the joining of the divine and the human into one person, Jesus. Now, Piper's uh, uh, way of saying this sounds much more proper, right, than saying that Jesus is God concarni. And if you're mildly offended by me saying God concarni, imagine how offended uh, uh, non-Christian Jews would be at referring to God becoming human. It, it just doesn't. It just doesn't happen. Uh, at the beginning of my sermon, I said that the name Mighty God sort of turns our understanding about God upside down. And this is, this is the first way that it does it, um, that, that God would become human. And, and you and I might be pretty used to that concept. Uh, most Christians have, have heard that before. We know that Jesus wasn't just a good person, that he was divine as well. But again, for the non-Jewish uh, person, uh, this, this idea is just plain offensive. It's, it's also, interestingly, uh, uh, one of the biggest barriers in sharing the gospel with Muslims. Uh, our missionaries who work with Muslim people don't tend to use John 3.16 as a part of their gospel presentation. Um, the idea, and this is the idea that comes when we use this kind of language in John 3.16, the idea of God getting together with a woman, a human woman, and having a baby, that's, that's, that's blasphemy, right? Even for a Muslim. And so missionaries working with Muslims have to find uh, different approaches uh, that don't put the hearer off immediately. Anyway, there's another way Uh, that I think this term El Gibor, mighty God, is hard for us to comprehend. Uh, Remember uh, the the words that I put on the screen as a definition uh, of Gibor a little little bit ago. Mighty, strong, champion, hero, valiant warrior. Uh, The the language of of some of the verses that I I shared paint this graphic picture uh, for us of a, a warrior God. And and Isaiah 42 is one of them. The Lord will march forth like a mighty hero. He will come out like a warrior, full of fury. He will shout his battle cry and crush all his enemies. And a lot of the guys in the room are going, yeah, right? I like verses like this. I like the idea of my God being this victorious warrior fighting for me right? This is Rambo God. This is, this is Braveheart God, right? And, and when we finally get to the book of Revelation, man, Jesus is like the superhero, right? He's got lightning bolts coming out of his eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth and a bloody robe and he's riding on, riding on this white horse, Young, young men, young boys reading Revelation might have a hard time distinguishing it from Marvel comics. In fact, some, some Bible scholars refer to Revelation as a graphic novel. If you, if you know that genre at all, you, you can kind of see how 
Yeah, that's kind of what John is doing there in Revelation. I remember thinking uh, as a kid that as a Christian, I was, I was going to be a superhero too, right? Because I'm a Christian. Why do I say that? I'd, I'd read places in the Bible like Psalm 18. By my God, I can leap over a wall, you know, put on the cape and here we go. Superman. I'd be flying around, taking on all the bullies that my school could serve up. Why? Psalm 18 told me so. He trains my hands for war. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. I pursue my enemies and overtake them. I do not turn back until they are all wiped out. I crush them and they can't get up. They fall beneath my feet. You have clothed me with strength for battle. You subdue my adversaries beneath me. I thought that was for me, you know? Just a word of caution to you all. As it turns out, claiming these verses with the bullies in the neighborhood doesn't, doesn't keep you from getting beat up. might actually foster some of that. So I've been told. So that's what we think of when we think of this mighty warrior God. But, but then there's a big surprise waiting for us when Messiah finally comes. Because he doesn't come as this mighty warrior riding on a white horse to, to overthrow our oppressors whether those oppressors be Rome or the Assyrians or Babylon or any other oppressive system. He hasn't come like that. He comes as a baby. A baby. Now, we think that's a sweet story, you know, little baby in a manger with talking animals gathered around. And, and that's what the TV shows say anyway. What happened to this mighty warrior? Where'd that guy go? Right? Well, maybe when he grows up. So then we come to stories like the one where James and John want him to call down lightning. Call down fire from heaven on his opponents. Jesus says, no, that's not how we're going to do it. Some Bible scholars think that Judas may have been a part of a a group of Jewish zealots intent on driving out uh, the Romans with violence. The word or name Iscariot points to a group of assassins called the Sicarii. And so some Bible scholars think that another way of of saying Judas's name would be Judas of the sword. See, Judas was looking for Jesus to overthrow Rome with violence. Jesus says, no, put away the sword. That's not how I'm going to do it. Well, maybe it'll be when he, when he finally rides into Jerusalem with the crowds shouting that messianic psalm, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The disciples must have thought, 
Oh, this is perfect. Right? Perfect timing. Now he's going to establish his kingdom. Except Jesus says, I got other plans. I'm actually going to Jerusalem to suffer many things and then be killed. And Peter says, the Bible says, Peter rebuked him. Remember? No, Lord. This is never going to be. Not if I have anything to do with it. And you remember what Jesus said. Get behind me, Satan. And that day that Jesus hung on a cross and breathed his last, I can assure you that none of his followers thought that he was the mighty warrior Messiah that Isaiah spoke of. I guess we were wrong. This this can't be him. It's all over. The bad guys won. There's, There's no conquering hero coming to save the day. See, God had this completely upside down idea of what it would look like for the Messiah to be mighty God. Well, not really. God didn't have an upside down idea. We do, right? But if they had been paying attention, they might have realized that this is what the prophet Isaiah was talking about, for instance, in Isaiah 53, where we read he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. One of the other Old Testament passages that that sheds some light on this whole mighty God, Messiah thing is uh, in Zephaniah 3.17, which says, The Lord your God is in your midst. He is mighty to save. Mighty to save. To save. It's our word that we've been looking at. Gibor. Mighty. Save is Yasha. I'm going to come back to that in, in just a few minutes. Mighty to save. But what, what is this mighty God saving us from? If it's not saving us from oppressive governments or all of our problems. What is, what is he saving us from? And the New Testament writers help us make sense of what Isaiah's prophecy uh, was talking about when he said he would be called mighty God, the one who would save us. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5.8 that our enemy, our great enemy, is the devil who is prowling around looking for who he can devour, destroy. Just a few weeks ago in Colossians, we saw that the consequences of our sin had brought us death. But God had made us alive in Christ when he forgave all of our sins. He he canceled the charges brought against us 
and took them away when he nailed them to the cross. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And, and, and then look at this. We're, we're going to put it on the screen because I want you to see this. In this way, what Jesus did on the cross, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities, Satan and, and his demons. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Friends, there is our mighty God, our mighty warrior Messiah. Not leading us into battle against Babylon or Assyria or Rome or whatever other enemy you have in mind when you read your Bible about a conquering hero. No, he, he went to battle for us in a way that we never could by humbling himself to the point of death on a cross to save us from the penalty of our sins. Quoting again from John Piper, he says, when Christ died for our sins, Satan was disarmed and defeated. The one eternally destructive weapon that he had, I'd like to say the one and only eternally destructive weapon that he had was stripped from his hand, namely his accusation before God that we are guilty and should perish with him. When Christ died, that accusation was nullified. All those who entrust themselves to Christ will never perish. The victory over sin and death has been won. Thank you. Thank you. But you see, none of this made any sense until after the resurrection. This whole thing, coming as a baby, living this humble life of of a servant, dying on a cross, that's not what power and might look like, right? It's after the resurrection we see what God was doing. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. There it is again. God's power being displayed in what appears to be weakness. I was thinking about this. Did Isaiah understand what he was writing about? I imagine that he didn't. Okay? He didn't really understand what he was writing in this book. God gives him this vision and he, and he says, write it down. I, I bet when Isaiah got to chapter 9, he's like, wait. This, this child is going to be called Mighty God? That can't be right. Write it down. When he, when he gets to chapter 53, Hold on, wait. I, I, thought, I thought you said that he was going to be called Mighty God. It, what I'm seeing here is a vision of something that looks like they're killing him on something that's shaped like a cross. That can't be. Write it down. See, God's ways are not our ways. 
from our perspective, it, it looks foolish. It looks weak. But it's really the amazing power of God at work. I love how Ray Ortland says it. He says, as it turns out, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and all the big shots of this world that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. God's answer to the bully swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. And here I, I want to make just one more point. We looked at Zephaniah 3.17 a few minutes ago. I want to put it on the screen. Again, it says, The Lord your God is in your midst. He is mighty, Gibor, to save. Yasha. Mighty to save is Gibor Yasha. Now listen. Yasha is the root word or is the root of the name Joshua. The Hebrew pronunciation of the name Joshua is Yeshua. The Greek pronunciation of Yeshua is, do you know? Jesus. In Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, the angel told Joseph to name the baby Jesus. Do you remember why? He will save his people from their sins. Friends, Jesus is our mighty God who saves us from our sins. He is Gibor Yeshua. Mighty Jesus. A couple of years ago when we went through the book of Exodus, we saw how, how a mighty God had delivered his people from the bondage in Egypt and demonstrated his his might and his power by bringing them safely into the promised land. Now we see that Jesus is mighty God with skin on. And he's going to demonstrate that he is El Gibor. He is the mighty one who delivers his people from bondage to sin, slavery to sin and brings them into relationship and nearness to God himself. And this is what we celebrate at this table this morning. That that Jesus, our mighty God, has won the victory over sin for us. And he did it by dying in our place on the cross. The, The bread and the cup represent the body and the blood of Jesus that was shed in winning that victory over sin and death for us. I'm going to invite the the elders to come and take their places. And let let me just remind us all that this is an opportunity for for those who have placed their trust in Jesus as mighty God. It's an opportunity to remember what he has done for us and to thank him for it. 
And I want to say this too, it's also an opportunity for those who might be recognizing for the very first time what Jesus, mighty God, has done for them. And a simple prayer this morning telling him that you want to receive the forgiveness that he offers and that you want to follow him. That's all it takes to begin that journey of following him and surrendering to him as your king. And so I'm going to invite um, all of us here to uh, into a, just a moment of silent prayer to thank Jesus, our mighty God, for saving us from our sins. Jesus, mighty God, our Messiah who is mighty to save. We thank you this morning for winning the victory over sin and death for us. And while this table and and the cross it represents are foolishness in the eyes of the world, we celebrate this morning the mighty power of God that is displayed in these elements. Thank you for the bread that we are about to receive. Representing your body, which you gave freely for us. You have become bread of life to us. And as we eat it, we want to take your life-giving power into us. Thank you. Amen.